Thank you all for joining us today. I'm Nick Young, Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at Emory University School of Medicine. This podcast will explore evaluation of back pain patients for spinal surgery or interventional pain procedures. All too often, we are siloed in our own specialty practice. Today, we will hear about our counterparts approach to evaluating back pain patients for surgical or non-surgical procedures. In doing so, we can enhance collaborative opportunities amongst our disciplines and deliver excellent care efficiently. I'm here today with Drs. Gary and Kadri, both of whom are my colleagues at Emory. Dr. Gary and Dr. Kadri, could you please uh, introduce yourselves? Hey, Nick. Uh, thank you for having us. Um, my name is Matthew Gary. I'm also an assistant professor here at Emory, um, part of the Spine Center. Um, I, I specialize in, in spine surgery. Um, I did my fellowship uh, down at the uh, University of Miami uh, in complex and minimally invasive spine surgery. Uh, thanks for having me as well, Dr. Young. My name is Jaward Kadri. I'm also an assistant professor here based out of the anesthesia uh, pain group. I'm focused primarily on cancer pain and uh, what I call boundary conditions, generally folks that have had a lot of other stuff done and salvage work. My training was in North Carolina and Durham, and I've stayed on their faculty for a little bit before coming down here. Thank you both for being here. Um, I, I, I wanted to talk more about how we as different specialties see the same patient, which is back pain patients. Uh, and I wanna start off with outside of the basics, what key interview or exam components help, helps you with the decision-making when evaluating a back pain patient in your clinic? Uh, Dr. Gary, can you start off please? Yes, um, well, I mean, to your point, uh, we, we work very closely with our physiatry and uh, anesthesia counterparts and so, Frequently, when, when a patient comes to see me, um, they've already seen um, you know, one of our physiatrists or anesthesiology colleagues. Um, and when I'm evaluating them, I'm kind of, you know, kind of a second look, so to speak. And so I do um, always make sure that I check any of the records that the patient already has um, from our physiatrist or anesthesiologist to, to see what treatments they've, they've had in the past, um, obviously how long they've been, you know, they've had this pain. Um, and, and really, you know, why are they here to see a surgeon? Um, because most patients nowadays, when, when they come to see a, a neurosurgeon or a spine surgeon, orthopedic surgeon, um, they know that they're there for a surgical recommendation. And, and obviously the pain has gotten to the point um, where they are seeking out um, that recommendation. Um, now, it's not always. Occasionally, I do get a patient here or there who um, I'm seeing for the first time. Um, you know, they, 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 I, I operated on a family friend or, or a friend of theirs, and uh, they said, hey, you know, you, you have to see Dr. Gary. He did my spine surgery, um, and they haven't seen one of our colleagues. Um, but uh, to, to your question specifically, you know, what factors kind of clue me in as to, you know, how I'm going to guide my treatment. Um, that's a very hard question to answer, to be honest with you, because back pain, what, what I've learned in the, you know, six short years I've been attending is it's so complex and, and every patient is so unique. And, you know, it, there, there's probably a hundred data points coming at you from the history, the physical, um, the x-rays, the CAT scans, the MRIs, and it's really kind of the synthesis of that information 
And, you know, I, I hate to put it this way, but it's almost the gestalt um, at, at a certain point as to what, what, what's the source of the pain, um, how do you tie everything together, um, and whether or not they need continued conservative treatment or if they're ready for surgery. Yeah, to follow off of that, that gestalt part is spot on. The hardest part for us in our training is figuring out what is a structural problem and what's a processing issue. And that's uh, what I try to explain to my trainees as much as I can, emphasizing that there's patients that you can make the spine look beautiful, but you are not going to fix their analgesia issue. And so for us, it's a lot of diving into the psychosocial aspects, understanding what are the other pain generators and deciding is, is this something that requires a structural fix and will a structural fix suffice? I think that we've all seen a lot of great surgical uh, candidates that really just aren't there yet, aren't appropriately managed for their other comorbidities. And so for us, it's not necessarily, is this the right person for a surgery? It's a question of, is this the right time for that and this person's continuum of care? Excellent points. Uh, Dr. Kadri, can you talk more about um, the types of treatments you would offer first and the, the escalation that, that you're able to provide uh, that we may not know uh, enough about? Yeah, um, as an academic interventional pain doctor, my tool set's somewhat limited as compared to my trainees out in private practice just from politics and silos. But in general, what we're looking at, and when I talk to my patients, I offer them medications, uh, injections, and implants. That's my general spiel. Um, Medication-wise, there's not something that you guys haven't heard about before. Uh, I'm a huge fan of SNRIs and atypical agents, but it's really just trial and error. There's about 200 some medications for us to try through, and it's really just a question of do you want to use that whole pharmacopoeia or do you want to just take you know two or three drugs? Obviously, you know gabapentin, Lyrica, those gabapentinoids, anti-epileptics of some sort. The SNRI, muscle relaxers, those are everyone's standards. Injection therapies, I'm not a huge fan of because there's very limited scenarios for me where steroids make sense. In some scenarios, they definitely do. I just don't see them as often being a position where I am in the ecosystem. But obviously, um, we have all types of different uh, epidural steroids to try, access points, different targets. Uh, Articular branch uh, issues and for the hip or the back, targeting the facets or different pain generators. Uh, for us, uh, it's really where the implants and sort of the minor procedure things get more interesting. And so, whether you're discussing uh, dorsal column stimulation, peripheral stimulation of uh, the SIs or the quineals, these are options that we consider and pursue, but it's just a question of, again, is this, does this make sense for this patient? Um, we do have some other therapies that are coming down the line that get complicated where it's a consideration of, well, should we be doing a minimally invasive uh, lumbar decompression, that mild procedure removing ligament? It's a discussion of, do we have someone that we can send uh, for an interspinous spacer? Those are becoming more common but it's not as large of a part of our clinical practice currently. Um, I think you guys have heard just about everything that we do. I think the only things that are coming 
around now that are gaining access to are things like vasovertebral nerve ablation or multifidus stimulation for uh, patients with nonspecific muscular back pain. So we do have some new tools coming, but again, it's just finding the right patient for that therapy. In terms of um, surgical uh, treatments, uh, the the, more, the most clear-cut patients, uh, Matt, are the mechanically unstable patients. Uh, uh, tell us more about those patients that are, I guess, more straightforward in terms of considering surgical treatment uh, for you for yourself. Yes. Um, so you know, obviously. Uh, patients who are coming in with neurologic symptoms um, are generally, um, you know, they do the best from surgery, right? You know, patients who come in with pure axial back pain, um, you know, those are not, in general, you know, obviously it depends on the image findings and what's going on, uh, but in, in degenerative cases with, you know, multi-level facet arthropathy without a, a slip, um, those are not they're in general not good candidates for surgery. That being said, um, I mean, you know, there's certainly um, patients who come in who, let's say, have a single level L5-S1 disc degeneration, um, no nerve compression, um, pure axial back pain, and it's been going on for 10 years, right? And they've been through the gamut. And I'll tell you what, you know, doing an ALIF on those patients, th those have been some of my happiest patients that, that I've ever taken care of. And so, you know, you know, obviously there's data, there's research, um, there's, there's trials, um, but at the end of the day, it's an individual that's in front of you. Um, and, and there's no um, trial or, or uh, randomized controlled uh, study uh, that's gonna answer the question as to whether or not that patient may or may not benefit from, from surgery. Um, you know, some of the more straightforward things are obviously spondylolisthesis, you know, somebody who comes in with um, axial back pain and radicular pain and a single level uh, uh, spondylolisthesis, uh, they're, they're great candidates uh, for a fusion operation. A patient who comes in with multi-level lumbar stenosis, central stenosis, neurogenic claudication, um, fantastic candidates for surgery. Uh, patients who come in with pure foraminal stenosis, um, you know, I, I see that uh, very often um, that they'll, they'll come in with a, a single level, um, you know, either far lateral disc herniation, um, which you, you have to be careful um, because frequently the, the radiologist, not, I don't think to the fault of their own, will miss those far lateral disc herniations just because they don't know the history, right? And so, you know, I, I talk to the patient and I, I you know, frequently I'll see the MRI before I even go to see them. Um, I don't say, well, I don't really see anything here. And I'll go talk to them and they'll, you know, give me a, an exact L4 distribution radiculopathy. And I'll go back and I'll look and say, oh, wait, wait a minute. There's a far lateral disc herniation here that was missed. Um, and, and those patients do phenomenal, uh, I, I believe, from surgery. Um, you know, in general, they're, they're in excruciating pain because the, the uh, disc is, is herniated and, and pushing on the, the dorsal root ganglion. Um, and, you know, so those, those are kind of the more straightforward uh, uh, patients. Um, but, you know, then you, you get into, um, you know, kind of over the last 10 years, 10, 15 years, uh, we've been looking more and more at global alignment um, in patients with a flat back, uh, patients obviously with scoliosis, degenerative scoliosis. Um, and there's, there's more and more uh, technology uh, at our hands 
to help these patients in a more uh, quote unquote minimally invasive fashion. Um, now minimally invasive does get thrown around there uh, a lot these days uh, to, to kind of encompass a lot of different things. Um, it's, you know, some, some people call, you know, just a microdiscectomy and an MIST left through tube uh, minimally invasive, but others would say, well, we can do these lateral oblique lateral approaches with small incisions and percutaneous screws and take care of, you know, major deformities uh, with a quote unquote more minimally invasive procedure. Um, so there, there really is a, a, a gamut of uh, surgical options uh, out there. Um, but, uh, you know, um, going back to Dr. Quadri's uh, response, you know, it, it's, it's so dependent on the gestalt and, um, you know, where the patient's pain is. And, you know, I, you know, and I, you know, I've seen a number of patients who come in with a terrible looking scoliosis um, and, you know, I'm, I'm looking at their images before I go in to see them and I'm, I'm kind of dreading having to have a conversation about scoliosis surgery. And then I go talk to them and they're like, well, my pain is just right here. And they're pointing over their SI joint. And I'm like, oh, well, this, this is, this is easy. You know, <laughs> you know, they, they've been told that they need a major deformity surgery, but nobody actually looked at their back and, and saw where their pain was. Um, so you, you've got to be very careful when, when you're looking at these images that you're, you're not, um, you know, looking at a red herring, which, uh, frequently I, I feel like, uh, there, there are tons of red herrings out there. Um, and, and you have to listen to the patient. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, the, the history as we've all been taught, um, is extremely important in making the correct diagnosis and, and effective treatment plan ultimately. Um, to really get a firm understanding of what the patient really wants out of their treatment um, and see if that matches. Uh, I want to go back to um, the discussion about uh, global alignment and maybe even dynamic uh, imaging. Uh, certainly as a neurosurgeon, you know, that's been uh, really a hot topic over the last you know, few years. I was wondering, is that being used in the, in the pain interventional field in terms of evaluating back patient um, when, when they first hit the door? Um, not as much as you guys do for structural work. Most of the things that we do aren't gonna affect that. Uh, even with our fixation devices that are coming into vogue, it's not a fusion, right? And so our teams are definitely not educated to the level that you guys are. The, there's a lot of discussion about this patient's out of alignment. They've got you know, severe lordosis, kyphosis. You know, this is um, scoliosis is going to cause this. And those are discussion points for us in terms of targets. But in general, we're not as focused on that because we can't fix it or manipulate it as well as you all can. Obviously, for those of us that do dorsal column stem, that becomes problematic because the cord is moving and no scoliotic patients. And so we do look at those images and get the full length shots, but it's not um, as much of a part of our treatment algorithm as it is for you, your teams. Yeah, and, and you know, that, that's a, it can be a huge challenge because um, not infrequently, these patients are not good surgical candidates, um, you know, especially um, when you have these uh, older uh, women with osteoporosis 
um, and, and multiple medical comorbidities who are coming in with you know severe axial back pain um, and uh, they're, they're, they're patients that you, you have hesitancy for surgery for, for a number of reasons, um, you know, pseudoarthrosis rates, proximal junctional kyphosis. Um, but then at the same time, um, to your point, we're limited in terms of the non-operative treatments, you know, aside from, you know, physical therapy um, and uh, pain medications. And so, you know, in those cases where there are no good non-operative treatments and they're high risk, it becomes a little bit difficult uh, for those patients in deciding, you know, who do you ultimately offer surgery to? Because, um, you know, some of these patients, you know, which I'm sure you've seen are, are you know, absolutely suffering. Um, yeah. Right. And that's a hard case because I don't believe steroids are going to fix, you know, bony protrusion causing a radic. And so in that scenario, we do lean more on Neuromod if, if we can deploy it. But then the question becomes, do you deploy it in the canal, outside the canal, next to the canal? And we do have many more options now than we used to. Yeah. And in, in terms of uh, open neuromodulation, um, you know, you, you, I tend to you know, be hesitant with that in the scoliotic patient or kyphotic patient because you know, you could potentiate that scoliosis or kyphosis if you do a laminectomy for a stimulator. Um, and so, you know, I'm very hesitant, you know, in those, in those patients, if you're not going to offer the big deformity surgery, I'm much, I'm very hesitant to offer, you know, any type of surgery that's going to change their anatomy. Right. Percutaneous leads have a little more flexibility, but you still need to capture the cord. And again, this is a place where some of the older therapies that have fallen out of favor, such as intrathecal targeted drug delivery may make more sense, but it's a very individual decision for the patient. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, deformity can be a whole topic unto itself. Um, but what I would say is that um, for, for anybody who is, is doing spine care, um, whether it's a surgeon, non-surgeon, orthopedic doctor, neurosurgeon, you know, probably the biggest thing to look at is the global alignment. You know, where does their head fall um, on, on full standing x-rays? Or, or if you don't have full standing x-rays, when you see them stand up, um, is their head, you know, in front of their feet or is it at the level of their feet or behind their feet? And um, if it's in front of their feet, um, then frequently that is a large contributor to their back pain and their inability to stand upright for long periods of time. Now, sometimes you can have a forward posture from severe central stenosis, you know, shopping cart sign, um, but usually you can get them to stand up straight um, if that's the case, even for a few minutes. Uh, whereas somebody, if somebody who has a, a true structural flat back and, and, or, and or kyphosis, there's no way that they can get up upright. Um, it's just something that's very important to, to know because um, you know there, there are a number of studies out there showing that uh, uh, quality of life is, is greatly affected by a positive sagittal alignment. Well, I want to take a few minutes to talk about uh, the timing of steroid treatment and subsequent uh, surgery, maybe with an implant later, there's some discussion about in increased risk of infection uh, in those patients. What are your thoughts on timing and what, what's a, what do you think is an optimal strategy to manage patients like that? Yeah, so from our perspective, it's really a question of, again, does the surgery make sense? If uh, surgery's got a better fix, then that should be pursued. 
However, most insurers do require some conservative management. And in that scenario, the biggest boondoggle is the steroid injection. Epidural steroids have mixed data and you can do an epidural without the steroid and they get the same efficacy. But the real question becomes, does that increase the risk of surgical site infection for all cases? And so in general, again, if we can get away from using depo forms of steroid, we can do lower doses, probably is a good idea. But it's, again, a difficult scenario for us. At the end of the day, no one wants to have a surgical site infection, but we also don't want you guys to have to operate on everybody. And so it's, um, it's a valid question, valid point. The bigger question that I often get is, should I do a stimulator first on this patient to help with the pain and then come back later to talk about a structural fix for something? And that's, again, a hard one. It's all a risk-benefit discussion with the patient and the surgical team. And that's where it's helpful to have colleagues to just you know, bounce things off of or work next to. Yeah, so um, you know, frequently when patients come to me, they, they've already had um, conservative treatment. Um, but when they haven't, and say they have a, an acute disc herniation, um, well, 90% of the time, that's going to get better on its own, you know, without surgery. And so, you know, I generally do recommend injections in those patients. Um, you know, you know, I think that there's something to be said, not only for, for the compression of a disc herniation, but also the inflammation uh, around the disc herniation. And sometimes I'll get patients who, who don't have a very impressive disc herniation. It's just an annular fissure, annular tear, and they are dying in pain. And so to me, that's got to be from inflammation, um, you know, and, and to your point, you know, the, the data is mixed, um, but uh, I generally do offer them injections. And, and plus, if, if, if we are going to be moving towards surgery, uh, like you said, um, insurance companies uh, frequently, um, you know, want to see what conservative treatments they've already had, um, you know, physical therapy, injections, medications, um, and, and those types of things. As far as timing of surgery relative to injections, um, I'll be honest with you, I really don't pay attention to that. I, I you know, when, when I'm doing a micro disc, I actually leave steroids in the, in the wound um, over the nerve root. Um, and so, um, or, you know, frequently we'll give steroids for a period of time you know, oral steroids after surgery to help with their post-operative uh, pain. Um, and so I, I don't, I don't uh, delay. If somebody, you know, had an injection and they come to the hospital because their pain's getting worse and, and, and there's, they, they can't walk and they're in unbearable pain, I don't delay the surgery because they had a recent injection. Yeah, the data on it are mixed. Uh, again, chronic steroid therapy, I think we could all agree with, but an acute exposure right around the surgical time may not be a problem. And so uh, routinely anesthesiologists are giving four to eight milligrams IV dexamethasone for post-operative nausea prophylaxis and other things around jaw surgeries. And so again, it's, um, it's an interesting point, but depending on the school of thought, people sometimes get very worried about it. Mm -hmm. What um, emerging treatment options are you both most excited about in your field? Um, for us, I think probably the simplest one to talk about is vasovertebral nerve ablation. That seems like it may be very helpful for sort of that anterior element pain, vertebrogenic pain that we've been trying to treat. Uh, that appears low risk, appears definitely um, to have some good data for it so far. And we'll see how it is in actual clinical practice. Um, I mean, for us, you know, uh, robotics is, is 
coming. Um, you know, throughout healthcare, uh, robotics is coming. Um, I actually did my first uh, robotic case last week, um, super robotic spine case, um, and. Uh, you know, my, my, I had mixed feelings about it before I did the case, um, but uh, in doing the case and afterwards, um, I was completely sold. Um, and so, you know, today the technology, you know, may be a little bit of a, a, you know, gimmick, so to speak, because it's just there to put screws. Um, but, you know, just watching it in action and seeing how accurate it is and, um, precise and um, how 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 it helps you to plan your surgery and, and just plan everything. If the, really, the, the 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 robotic arm is one thing, but it's the technology that goes into the and the, the pre planning, planning out all of your screws, planning your trajectories. You know how you want to do your correction, how do, how you want to treat this patient, um, being able to sub segment the spine and. Uh, and uh, having artificial intelligence, you know, to, you know, guide you as as to what is the the, the best way of treating this patient, um, you know, that that I think is is the the wave of the future, you know, and, and also having artificial intelligence to to tell you what the risk of surgery is going to be, and 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 who you need to counsel on on uh, comorbidities and, and complications and, and those types of things, um, you know, I think that's that's the exciting part. Um, and and uh, we're, we're, we definitely live in, a, in an exciting time as far as spine care is concerned. Yeah, I couldn't agree. I think this is an exciting time for medicine. Um, we are we are really benefiting from you know a lot of technological development and also maybe some technique improvements as a result of that as well. Uh, both to both our fields really. But um, I, I want to thank you both for being here and sharing your thoughts uh, and, your, and your expertise. Uh, I want to thank the CNS and NANS for supporting this uh, joint collaboration for this innovative series. I hope all of the listeners will be able to join us again for future episodes and as well as the interactive webinar that's going to be moderated by the faculty uh, from these podcasts. So thank you both. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate thank you. it.